from Beyond the Beltway. This is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by education activist Jennifer Lynn, Nadana Muboyahi, Stephanie Hitt, and Jennifer Warner from Stand for Children. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base at the beautiful flagship studios of WIND AM 560 Radio in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Nice to have you with us. Phone lines open 1-800-723-8289. If you'd like to talk about some other issue that is happening in the world, uh, uh, save that till our second hour this evening because we are going to focus on an issue that really has dominated uh, the news in many parts of the country, even nationally, uh, for the last several months, and that is what's happening in classrooms. What is the relationship between teachers and students uh, teachers and administrators, and more, most importantly, I guess, teachers and parents. It seems to me that more and more parents are getting involved in what's happening at their schools. Uh, some schools may not really like that. It's become an issue in the race for the governor of the Commonwealth of uh, Virginia, and it could be a defining uh, factor in that race. So it's all of these things are happening. Critical race theory is another one. Uh, transgenders in the classroom. I mean, you name it, the long list is there. Uh, and uh, the Republican Party for years has tried to energize constituents around the country and tried to make education you know their their pet issue, usually based on on matters of uh, of you know cultural differences, and uh, this appears to be a time that maybe when you couple this with the way that a lot of parents do not like the way uh, the the COVID nineteen is being handled in the classroom, this might be an, a year when education really becomes, it moves to the top of the list of issues that concern people and send them to the polls. So we've got lots to talk about. We're going to do two hours on it tonight, unless there's a specific burning issue you want to get off your chest. Uh, Jennifer Lid, we welcome you to our program this evening. Uh, Stephanie Hitt also joins us in studio. Uh, she is a frequent guest on this program. But Jennifer Lind, I want to start with you. Uh, you have students uh, in the high school system. But one, the, Many have graduated. Mm-hmm. One is still in the high school system yes. in the New Trier area, which is one of the top high schools in the United States. Yes. Uh, what brings you to become an education activist? What, what, what got you off your chair and uh, speaking out? Well, in our neighborhood in Wilmette, which is a near suburb north of Chicago, some of our closest personal friends are mixed-race families in our neighborhood, which is large, predominantly white, our high school and its feeder school districts. And their chi- they expressed concern that their children were falling through the cracks, were unable to thrive in some of the... Um, in some of the settings within our school based on both what was being taught and what was not being taught, sort of the hidden curriculum. And they've reached out to white um, uh, community members like myself to um, to show public support for the Board of Ed, for the school district, in ensuring that all students could thrive within our school district. Okay. Stephanie Hitt also joins us this evening, a, a, a frequent guest on this program, and uh, you were both invited to be on tonight. We found out that you live uh, a couple of miles <laughs> apart, yeah. but you also have been moved to uh, education activism, yeah. primarily in the Catholic school district. Is that correct? correct? Right. A specific Catholic yeah. high school. So w- what, what brought you uh, out of your chair? 
Well, the what we noticed, and um, I think a lot of parents did notice this, and it had a lot to do with COVID measures and in-home school, you know, at-home schooling, was that um, there were a lot of issues that were coming into the classroom that didn't that didn't necessarily have uh, parental support. My my activism is a little bit different in that it is in the Catholic setting. And we found that there were many things that were going on in the classroom or being taught that were actually contrary to Catholic social doctrine. And so uh, that was really what brought me to the front, to sort of pull back the Band-Aid and see what was going on in the classrooms. And I think what was revealed is that these trends toward a more progressive agenda uh, in the classroom, they aren't, they, they're relatively new in the Catholic setting, but they've been going on in the public school setting for quite a long time. And I think when you talked about parents waking up and Republicans in particular not being motivated by educational issues, um, that's now a 180. Jennifer Lynn, let me ask you, what do you see happening on the other side of the political aisle? She, Stephanie's just described, you know, from her point of view, how do you see the involvement by uh, conservative parents? Um, it's, it's hard for me to speak on behalf of other parents, really, but I would say I think that there's a resistance to changing our, um, to looking at our history in a more nuanced, more complete setting. I look back on my education and my history and the things that I learned and the things that I did not learn, and that there are gaping holes in my education. And I think the resistance to add, filling in our history is what I see maybe, if you want, as you put it, Bruce, on the other side. Mm -hmm. um, I would give an example. For example, I would think... Would you agree that there, there has been any movement towards progressivism, or is it just a greater awareness of the totality of history that you want to include? I would say the latter, as you said. I would not define it as progressivism. For example, I looked literally at some of the history textbooks I had, and I was taught about Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, which is true in, in, in our core values, but I was never taught about the only book he published, The Notes on the State of Virginia in 1795, which was his um, his argument in favor of slavery and in favor of um, arguing for um, the inferiority of African Americans, he need, um, compared Africans to orangutans. And we have those gaping holes where we only, I was only taught in my education, the, the, the comfortable topics. Stephanie, a question to you. Is that a, is that a fact of life about Jefferson uh, that the public and students should know about? Um, well, uh, you know, it's interesting you bring up Jefferson because as a uh, as a student, someone who attended the University of Virginia, right. I was going to say that's a very that's an he is a particularly unique and interesting example of someone that, you know, was presented in a very particular way uh, in the history books through the Declaration of Independence, one mm -hmm. of our founding fathers, and so on. All um, positive. All very positive. However, there you know there there was always this understanding that he ha held slaves. People knew that, but. Where, where some of this has come out, and, and actually one of the universities that I think has handled this very well without, without erasing his, his importance in history, mm -hmm. and that's another area we can talk about is the mm -hmm. erasing of history, mm -hmm. is um, you know, coming to grips with who he was as a slaveholder, his relationship with Sally Hemings, and the university back in the early 1990s finally sort of openly addressed that part. So if you went to visit Monticello before, say, 1990, they, they really didn't talk about, um, you know, 
the, the slaves that he held and where they lived and what they contributed. Mm-hmm. And both, both Jefferson's you know, Historical Society, Monticello, and the university have probably done the most ideal job in terms of balancing the truth about the life that Jefferson led an understanding of the historical context mm-hmm. of where he was living and what he was doing, as well as, you know, trying to understand the man that he was. And it, what it means is these things are not um, cut and dried. Right. There's a lot of nuance that, again, wanna, the progressive agenda, we can talk about I, I erasing. Want Jennifer, I want Jennifer to follow up on that and answer these points right. tit for tat. But, again, one thing, again, this goes back to what I've sort of learned over the years, and it was when you're in grammar school or elementary school, everything did, everything America did was right. In high school, you learn every once in a while they did something wrong. And when you get to college you learn that perhaps everything they did was wrong. So we'll talk about that when we come back. I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8289. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. 
Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue uh, with our discussion. Uh, Jennifer Lynn, uh, a question to you. You heard uh, Stephanie give her uh, overall assessment of, uh, I would say, some pluses and minuses about Thomas Jefferson uh, and how administrations, both large and small, sort of try to cover that up or, or mm-hmm. deal with it. Uh, what's your assessment of her? Was her definition correct, do you think? Um, and how, how much about Thomas Jefferson or about any of our founding fathers or mothers mm-hmm. do we really need to know uh, if it was maybe, you know, part of their personality, but, but maybe uh, not as important as some of the other things they did in life? Well, I would say two things. First of all, knowledge is always better than ignorance in every mm-hmm. aspect of life. I would rather have knowledge than ignorance on any topic, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable. And I think Thomas Jefferson and the Monticello Foundation is a very interesting example in that they have opened the Sally Hemings exhibit in 2014, and they offer tours of where Sally Hemings used to live. Because in the 1920s, when the current foundation that owns Monticello um, gained ownership, they put concrete over the quarters where Sally Hemings lived, which was adjacent to Jefferson's quarters, and made it a male bathroom. And um, knowing that that was her quarters. Mm -hmm. But in 1963, when they got starting having so many tours that they needed new restrooms. They uncovered that, and then it took all that scholarship um, to prove that uh, their relationship and the six children they had together, et cetera, and now they have open tours. I think the point is that we're better off knowing the full picture of our founding fathers. I would generally agree with what you just said, but but here's the point, Uh, and this gets back to what I said before we went into the break. Is that information that a young student needs to know in high school? They certainly learn that in college. Do they need to know it in elementary school? At what point in their development as a, as a, as a student do they need to know that our founding fathers weren't always perfect? I mean, if, if they're relatively young and their parents, they certainly may have heard of Bill Clinton uh, who has <laughs> many don't know about. indiscretions. <laughs> Another and flawed th- human. <laughs> we are all flawed, right. right. But my right. question is, at, at what point does that become uh, in, in, involved in, in when they are educated? And I, and I would broaden this out because we're talking about Jefferson specifically at the moment, but in the broader issue of race and race relations or race theory uh, that is also very controversial, at what point do we introduce that concept to a student? I think that's the most important point. It's teaching history, and I think it's never too young to teach and learn the truth, just like the Holocaust stories, or just like I remember one of our children had a child, a children's book, and it had something to do with the Underground Railroad, and um, she didn't realize that slavery was um, violent. She thought it meant people worked for no wages. Mm-hmm. And I, she was very young, and I thought, just like Holocaust units with young children, it's never too young to teach children the truth. I think we learn from the youngsters. We learn from students. And um, it can be age-appropriate, but I don't think we should ever withhold parts of the truth from children. And I think the focus on Thomas Jefferson and his uh, the six children he fathered with Sally Hemings is unproductive to just focus on that. The more important point, as you say, is really telling a full and complete and accurate history. But someone in sixth or seventh grade is old enough to hear that story? Of course. What about you? Just on that particular point, do you you believe that sixth uh, sixth and seventh graders in grammar schools around the country need to have that discussed? Um, 
they are, I think at that age, you are capable of understanding sort of the imperfections of, you know, history. And um, I remember, I think it was around seventh, eighth grade is when my, our classrooms, and this was in the Catholic <clears throat> school, did start talking about the Holocaust and really understanding. I think kindergarten, that's a little bit, I think, you know, I'm not a child psychologist, but I'm a mother. <laughs> and um, there are certain concepts that I think are difficult to, what about, what to a, teach. What about, this, what about this concept? And, and that is, uh, you, you stated this, Sally Hemings, uh, the writings of Thomas Jefferson, uh, the things that we didn't learn in history books, at least when I went to mm -hmm. primary school. Um, how do you explain to a six or seven or eight year old or, or right. someone in sixth, seventh or eighth grade, how do you explain to them that uh, Thomas Jefferson did all these things, but in addition to that, you have to, you have to measure that against some of the other things that he did that are in the history books that have been talked right. about for hundreds of years. How do you explain to a, a young mind that you have to take in the totality of a human being or the right. the year and the era in which they lived well I, th I think you just said it you you explain it to them you have that conversation um what is what has been very difficult in these this transition or some of these progressive movements to um, I think, as Jennifer was saying, expand historical knowledge, and I think she's all in support, and I'm, I am completely in support of expanding and you know, letting our, our children should know the truth about our country. But there is a leap that is being made to say that there are these facts, but us, the bad facts outweigh the good facts, and they invalidate. Is that what you're saying, Jennifer? No, she's not, but I'm saying that's that is what's happening in our schools. Is that is in your view, is that what's happening in schools? I certainly hope not. I certainly <clears throat> hope we have competent teachers who can balance education. What about at Nutrier? I don't believe that's happening at Nutrier. I feel confident. Do you think it's happening at Nutrier High School? I don't I don't know it. So you don't know? There may be days, but I, I will say it's happening at Loyola Academy. Okay. It is. Yeah. That there is a uh, uh, a bent towards progressivism and a warped version of history that's being conveyed to students through a lens to denigrate the findings and the finding principles of our you, go, you, yes. you, you have chosen to send your children or your current children yes. to uh, a private Catholic school. Right. So you're paying a tuition, probably a significant tuition for that. Mm -hmm. When you send those dollars to Loyola, Loyola Academy, do you expect as the payer Mm -hmm. You expect to demand and see and approve the curriculum yes. which your students are receiving. Um, yes, because there is a, an implicit contract, an implicit trust, especially when you go to a private school and, and specifically a Catholic school, that those, the, the teachings and the education will be done according to a certain set of principles. And so there is that sort of implicit um, agreement. You know, we chose Loyola in many sense because we did not want to send our children to our local public high school, which was, is very much um, a progressive 
um, right. version, uh, you know, a progressive and lens we'll, of history right. and activism. Right. And, and, and we'll be hearing about that in yeah. the second hour. Yeah, exactly. By the way, let, let me ask, your answer to the same question. Now, you're talking about public education, mm -hmm. but again, the people who live in Nutra Township, which is where you live, mm -hmm. I mean, they pay very high property taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, they are primarily well-to-do or successful people. But do they feel that when they send their kids to school that they have some right to find out and ask and maybe challenge what their children are being taught in school? Yes, I think um, parents and all taxpaying community members have a right to hold our schools accountable and to communicate in any way we see fit to board members. All of those emails can be FOIA. All communications with schools are public. So absolutely, to inquire, to challenge, to invite conversation. Um, all parents, I think, should communicate in the way they see fit. Are there too many parents now, oh, and this is for both of you, are there too many parents now who believe that they know better for their children? Do they know more than their children? I mean, it used to be parents would send their children to school where they were taught by teachers who, frankly, were better educated right. than the parents. Mm -hmm. is, is that concept gone at the moment? Um... We all raise our children as we see fit, of course. Right. I had a real light bulb moment, and um, I was assisting in the Sunday school class, and one of the young children said to the teacher, who's very experienced, a, a very capable, experienced Sunday school teacher, and it was before Easter during Lent, mm -hmm. and the child, young preschooler, four or five years old, yeah. said to the teacher, but what about the nails? What about the blood? And I learned such a lesson. In other words, um, they're gonna, they want the truth, and they want us to tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. And I would never tell them about the blood or the violence of the Easter story. And I thought, you know, they're going to go find that truth, especially with this Internet today. They're going to find out what they mm -hmm. want to find out. So I would rather tell them the truth as painful as it can be. But I want to tell them all of it. I'm not only going to focus on the negative. I like to see the events of 1776 and the events of 1619 are both true historical do the facts. Do the parents know better than the teachers? That's the question. I think what we found in our exploration is that there are a certain number of teachers and, and we can you know go back to many of these um, you know, secondary teacher certificate programs and so on um, and that's where a lot of our teachers are coming out of some of these programs they are they are coming in with a very extreme, narrow-minded, progressive agenda, aggressive, you know, progressive view of history, and um, that. And what we are finding is that, in fact, there is not a wealth of knowledge. Um, that the teachers uh, coming out are 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 indoctrinated as the attempts they are making on students, and we're finding that. Um, there are there is a class of teachers that um, that are not well educated, and yet they, and they are educating they, our students. And they are resentful of right. parents who think they know better than they do. And we've, we've the parents that right. send your kids and shut up. I it used to be the case that every teacher, I felt that every teacher that my child had was phenomenal. And these were teachers who had worked in the fields in which they are teaching. They had, you know, not just a, a, a teaching certificate master's, but a PhD in that area. And we're now seeing a, a shift in, in some of these younger teachers come in.
I want to hear from students, teachers, and uh, school administrators. If you're listening to the broadcast this evening, I'd be interested in your perspective. 1-800-723-8289, from coast to coast, border to border, and around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke anime Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a show. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps. ManageYourBP.org It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont, we're back on the air, ladies. Hopefully you have not said anything inappropriate. We'll lose our no, license. No, we won't do that. I was just going to say that 
this is probably the most cordial discussion of people. But, well, we actually and, agree uh, on quite a lot. I know. You know. You're, you're going to be, uh, one of you is going to be on the other side. By well, the time you know the show is over. The, the other way, guests are going to be the ones. Uh, let, let me mention that uh, tonight I, I did something interesting. Oh, I think I did something interesting. Uh, in our second hour, by the way, I, I found that when we have two guests in studio, the discussions, uh, they're, they're crisper. I'm looking at the people. Uh, sometimes when we get somebody involved in, in, uh, in a Zoom conversation, they start talking over it. It's, it's a little difficult. But what I did ask, since I was looking at a specific issue to sort of you know, debate this evening, I asked each of our guests uh, to give me the name of someone that they know or have read about that will agree with them on their on their core issue tonight and uh, we will invite each of them to be a guest in our second hour via zoom so our in-studio guests will have a, a second uh, you'll have an outside caller to participate in the discussion and uh, we will hear from them one is uh, uh, Jennifer uh, Wagner uh, Warner rather and she is with stand for children and uh, the other is a school activist from Evanston, Illinois, which uh, Stephanie referenced, and that is uh, Nadana Mubu Yahu Yahi, uh, and uh, she will be with us in the second hour as well. Um, 1-800-723-8029 if there are callers that want to participate. We have uh, a number of people that are sending in their, their their thoughts. But I want to take a moment for those that just tuned in. Uh, give me a brief 30-second introduction of who you are and what brings you to our studios tonight. Jennifer Lynn making her first appearance this evening. Go ahead. I'm Jennifer. I live in Wilmette. We're talking about the schools. Our children were raised in the public schools in Wilmette, K-12, through and our youngest is now a senior at Nutra High School. And I'm Stephanie Hitt. I'm a Republican activist, and um, lately I've been uh, tackling the issue of critical race theory. Um, and uh, I also am a mother of four, and uh, we, uh, um, you know, and I've become a uh, Catholic uh, social activist as well. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, Lenny McKinsey is joining us, uh, or she has joined us via well, text. Uh, education level does not give teachers the right to impose a world view on their students. Basic educational concepts are no longer the focus and indoctrination and a progressive view of the world. Sadly, that's what's happening in schools today. You would agree with that? I would agree. Jennifer, I, you disagree with that, right? There's a progressive, too many teachers are teaching their own worldview. In my experience, I would disagree. My experience has not been that teachers come in with sort of uh, progressive indoctrination teaching their own view. That's not been my experience. Progressives are defined by conservatives as those people that know that the world and our understanding of it changes. Nostalgia isn't history. A curriculum that sugarcoats our past does no one any good and is inaccurate. That's Kevin listening in Chicago. Well, I would you agree with that? that. I think, you know, Jennifer and I were, you know, we we're talking is uh, there is no issue that any parent I know um, who is troubled by critical race theory that has an issue of having a better understanding of the, the ugly parts of American history. Uh, for example, the Tulsa massacre or, um, you know, the truth about Thomas Jefferson as a slaveholder and, and so on. There is not a single parent who has a problem with our children in appropriate ways learning the truth about our founders. However, it's that leap that is made where the, those, those are the only issues. When, for example, school is being taught from only a racial lens, so much so that the entire curriculum is going to be about 
the ills of American founding or the ills of American philosophy or the ills of... But that, um, come, that, that, that pressure comes from outside groups like Black Lives Matter or maybe, maybe even the, it, or yes. maybe the, the Me Too movement. So when, right. when, those, when those issues are being discussed in the, in the contemporary uh, minefield of, or not minefield, could be a minefield, right. <laughs> landscape yeah. rather, of, of American political thought, a teacher who is hopefully bright, right. they become aware of that, they may agree with that, and you're asking them basically to sort of well, close it, that at the door and not bring that perspective to the classroom? I want each of you. Jennifer, right. I want to ask you if I've summarized a point because, uh, you know, in, in, in my day in school, I didn't, with, the, with one exception, I did not have any idea what the politics of my teacher was. I think it would be best if students had no idea what the politics of their teachers are. And I don't, but I think... It, rather than thinking of teaching all subjects, K through 12, through a lens of race and racism, I think it's more a matter of not minimizing our history that deals with marginalized communities, African Americans, Native Americans, that history, the legacy of slavery, the legacy of Native American genocide. If we have that absent or minimized to a sidebar in our history mm -hmm. books, then um, students from those communities who come from marginalized communities can fail to thrive in our schools. Well, Go ahead. I was going to say the problem with that is, and, and that's where, you know, if you're, I think we agree that accurate history should be taught. The problem is that you have groups that are forcing an agenda on schools, school boards, school systems, training of teachers that distorts that history so that the view, you know, political views start to form the interpretation of that history. And so, for example, you will, there is tremendous pressure, we talked briefly about this, uh, tremendous pressure to teach um, American history through the 1619 Project, which mm -hmm. has been disavowed by even liberal and progressive historians as being a false view or a false narrative of American history. Do you agree with that, Jennifer? Is that a false view? I don't consider it a false view. I think the research of Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, could have been and should have been done um, more thoroughly with in terms of her research with a histor historians who focus on early American history. Mm -hmm. However, I'd like to emphasize the events of 1776 and the events of 1619 are both true historical facts that should be taught and learned and, and um, reflected upon by our students. Mm -hmm. But the, prob the problem is point. that what's... Um, there, there is a distortion of the facts to fit the narrative. And that's, that's where the, you know, and those teachers who have already signed up for that political I ideology and for, um, kind of run rampant with it. And they, they do not allow kids to challenge that narrative. And that's another issue that's been coming up in classrooms. And they're not offering the other viewpoint. So that's, I would argue that I, 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 I have a suggestion I want to get your reaction to. It, it seems to me, as it relates to Jefferson, as it relates to many others, including FDR, and that is there is a, there's a lack of context uh, in the contemporary world 
to understand what prompted someone to make a political decision or a social decision right. at a particular point in time and because that time has changed and America and everybody is more educated now uh, they look like they're dunderheads when they made a decision right. when they were 35 years old and half of America agreed with them right. so I'm wondering if a better way to teach history would be to teach generations or, or decades so that the people would know what was America thinking, what was the, what was the world like right. in 1920? Why, why, what happened? What led to prohibition? Right. What led to the Roaring Twenties? Right. What led to the 1930s? What led to Huey Long? What led to the growth of the Ku Klux Klan? What led to America's favorite radio show being Amos and Andy? I mean, this is the foundation. If you're talking about race yeah. in America, it goes back 30, 40, 50 years in some cases. Right. Let everybody explain, teach it, teach it as a decade right. so that we know what, you know, the, the 1930s were about, uh, you know, uh, you know, in the late 20s, it was about the Depression. We know that. Right. But we, it was a lot more than just the Depression. There was there right. were bank robberies. There was uh, massive crime. Right. Uh, there was the first early abuses of the FBI. It all happened in the 1930s. But we don't think about that, or we right. or we look at you know J. Edgar Hoover being a horrible guy late in his life, and some right. do, but they forget that he was a great crime fighter in the 1930s, and right. and everything gets mushed together. Well, and it gets, and, that, and that's about people. It's about right. how you get pr presidential nominations upon which the American people but, make a decision. But like the problem Wilson. is, you know, some of this. Um, some of this new ideology wants to, to take away context, the idea of that context. And because it's now, we're now being told that context is a cloud, it erases, it's, it's, it, it, it's an excuse for bad behavior if we try Do to go too much that? to the context. No, I don't think it's an erasure. I think um, we, don't, we, sh we should remove clouds. I think any distortion of facts is not being b brought about by progressive education. I think it's more the distortion is the whitewashed education that's still, that's still uh, um, omnipresent in our country today. The idea of manifest destiny and that somehow we are, American exceptionalism is this God-given country, the right to commit Native American genocide founded on slavery. I think that's the distortion of the facts. And I think it goes against our founding ideals of justice for all, so that all voices, all people can be seen. Two examples, one easier example that's much less of a tinderbox is George H.W. Bush and the American Civil Disabilities Act. He was able to raise more voices, people who are disfavored, marginalized, with um, people who are handicapped, people who are disabled. Another person I would point to is someone I admire very much, who's often quoted by Ronald Reagan, John McCain, Barack Obama, MLK, is the Catholic 20, 20th century Catholic theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who wrote about how, if we're not careful, sort of what makes us great, this liberalism with a lowercase l in the sense of John Locke and European Enlightenment, would, if we grow too much with our strength as our individual rights without concern for the common good, that could lead to our um, shortcomings. Okay, we've got to pause. The music is a play in again. Stephanie Hitt, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Jennifer Lynn, thank you very much. You're going to continue. We've got another segment here, and then after the break, uh, they're each going to bring in their seconds, and uh, we'll have a, hopefully an intellectual Donnybrook in hour number two. <laughs> Don't go away. Thank you. I'm Bruce Dubon.
At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. A My Social Security account allows you to access your earnings history and benefits information, request a replacement Social Security card, get a proof of income letter, estimate and apply for benefits, and more. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, You should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont, we are back. And uh, I want to mention, by the way, uh, if you are uh, a regular uh, viewer of this program on either Facebook Live or on uh, YouTube Live, uh, your participation and, and sending your your comments in uh, via email or via via text uh, really I greatly appreciate it. we we have quite a debate that's going on on the air and we have uh, another one that's going on here I'm getting a, a phone call here we also have another one that's <laughs> uh, that's going on uh, online so again yeah. uh, tune in the program participate it's nice to hear uh, from everybody and, and sometimes uh, they get debates going even on things that we're not talking about there oh, which is also interesting anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, let's go now let's go to Dave listening to us on our program in Spokane Washington go ahead 
Well, good evening, Bruce. Um, the uh, conversation is interesting to me because uh, this topic always makes me uh, get a little bit upset because of the revisionist history that sometimes comes into uh, this this topic. Everybody wants to talk, you know, refer to people and judge them by kind of a today's standard when they think of people from the past and, you know, yes. tearing down statues of people who, because we think that what they did was so reprehensible mm-hmm. that, well, no, there can be no notice of that person. We should whitewash them from history. Uh, and it gets a little disturbing, too, when I hear about the uh, Native Americans and we refer to genocide uh, by the white people, that it was as if the Native Americans were just purely in Mother Earth, holy with the land, and they don't talk about how the Mohawks were often referred to as the flesh eaters, because when they would uh, take over another tribe's area or do an attack, they would eat and cannibalize many of their victims. Some of their warriors thought that by eating their enemies, they gained strength, just kind of like the Aztecs did, mm-hmm. uh, and, and talking about slavery, how come we don't talk about how slavery wasn't just a white man thing. I mean, there were black people in America, actually, that owned slaves. Uh, Usually it was black slaves, but for a time, in 1654, actually, in Virginia, it was was able to have black people own white slaves, not as a slave specifically, but as an indentured servant, which basically is a slave. Mm -hmm. But that was, you know, fairly quickly uh, stopped in Virginia. But across the country, there were many black people that uh, owned slaves themselves, and we continually refer to it, it was not, I say many, it was only as a percentage of the population of black people, it was only about 1.5% of them that were able to own mm-hmm. black slaves. But still it happened, and how come we don't talk about that? Why is it always the white person is the bad person? We can't just have an open and honest discussion that it occurred everywhere, not only in this country, but thousands of years before this country was formed, we had well, slavery. But we also, by the way, let me just mention, bad. Dave, and I don't know whether this, maybe this was you, but uh, uh, a, a gentleman by the name of... Dave, who, who has sent us an email, he reminded us that to look into the fact that uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, was someone who opposed the conquering of Native Americans. And that was, that was not the popular position uh, at the time. That's why, you know, to, to, to know what's going on in the country, the battle that's going on, obviously one party over the other wins that battle. But it's interesting to know those conversations are going on. And I did not know that about uh, Thomas Jefferson. Or, or, you know, one of the most uh, reviled um, people right now and whose statue is, I think, completely gone from every place now is Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was opposed to slavery and, in fact, freed his his father-in-law's slaves, never held slaves himself, and was morally opposed to it. And yet, you know, his statue is one of the first ones that comes down. Um, so again, you know, if you want to tell the dirty facts, you have to tell the good facts about the people that you're reviling as well. Okay, so Jennifer. Well, to the caller's point, um, in the aggregate, there's absolutely no doubt that um, the white settlers in the U.S. colonies and the white in our government was the one who committed and orchestrated Native American genocide. It doesn't suggest in any way that Native Americans were perfect or there wasn't a Native American or groups of Native Americans who also committed crimes. But in the aggregate, slavery in the U.S. To, in the U.S. colonies in the United States was absolutely our institution that we were founded upon, and as well as our policies against Native Americans. 
Um, and second, in terms of Robert E. Lee, he did own slaves. And his writings, and just like Jefferson, Jefferson left tens of thousands of letters. Robert E. Lee left letters that he ordered his escaped slaves when they were returned to be um, whipped and lashed and soaked in brine after, in his writings, say, to lay it on thick and to soak them in brine so that the other slaves, the other people he owned, would hear their screams and be terrorized and be too afraid to escape. He was a slave owner. And he I've, I have never that heard that sound. before. And well, I, yeah. live, I grew up around the corner record. from his yeah. boyhood home. Well, so again, maybe in his neighborhood they he, don't tell this story. And, and, he freed, yeah. and he freed. And, you know, we can sit there and talk about it. But, 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 but let's just, I mean, th this, is a, this is a good example of a very horrible incident mm -hmm. or something that was written by a person that many in right. America admire, including yourself. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that's a pretty dramatic think, story. Yeah. Oh, I think one of the best examples about Robert E. Lee is the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. In June 2015, after a white supremacist murdered nine parishioners at the AME, Saint, um, at the AME Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, mm -hmm. that the police officers went to his home the next morning, and he opened the door, this white man who's 21 years old. The police officers saw him, and they holstered their guns and walked this young white um, accused mass murderer, terrorist, to the car and drove him and got him a Burger King meal on the Dylan roof on the way to um, prison, on the way to jail. What we found, this is what really brought about this national movement to the headlines to bring down and remove um, Confederate symbols from public places, which is different from erasing history. And that was when Nikki Haley removed the Confederate flag from the state capitol, seeing that the Confederate symbols had, um, to see what to reassess the role of Confederate symbols in our country. And the National Cathedral, the day after that, in June 2015, put um, covers, put shields over the Lee Jackson Bay windows up in Washington, D.C., up there in um, northwest Washington. And they had a two-year conversation led by their Reverend Hall, is his last name, who's no longer there as the head minister, to discuss what to do with the Lee Jackson windows. And they decided as a community, as a country, everyone was welcome to join in the debate, including the members of the Daughters of the um, American Confederacy, who put those windows up in 1963. And they discussed it, and they found that those symbols were simply inconsistent with Christian values and the values of the church. And they didn't erase history. They removed them and put them in the basement, where they're now having an open public conversation and debate about what to do with those symbols of hate and racism. Well, the problem, the problem is that. You know, the problem is that was a great setup. It would be a great time for a response, but we do have to break for news and some commercials. Stephanie Hitt, you'll be back for hour number two. Yep. Jennifer Lind, you'll be back for hour number two, and we'll have two new guests that will join us via Zoom. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Another full hour coming up on Beyond the Beltway. over 92 180 over 111 182 over 100 and i had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke your blood pressure numbers could change your life a lot of people don't understand including myself i didn't now i do uh, the impact of having a stroke my memory is shot when I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. 
It's a new life. But I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. We've got some callers on the line, so we're going to go to them before we bring our uh, other guests who are going to join us via Zoom. Let's go to John in McHenry, Illinois. He's been waiting for quite some time. John, go ahead. You're on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you, and good evening to your guests. Thank you. Um, Just something I want to bring out. Three things that I haven't heard discussed, which kind of trouble me from the first hour. Okay. Um, One, the discussion about teachers' unions and their influence and in many ways negative and some positives. And number two, the poor participation of voters in local school board elections. Um, since your guests are from New Trier um, in Illinois, uh, their last school board election had less than 20% voter turnout. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people fill these school board meetings, but a lot of them don't come out to vote when it really matters the most. Okay. And let's let uh, wait, wait one second before you go to your next point. Let's let them discuss that matter uh, very quickly. Uh, Jennifer, okay. I'm going to start with you because you're in a public system. So yep. go ahead, and then we'll hear from uh, uh, Stephanie. Well, I assume, and based on my experience, the people who show up at school board meetings are the ones who vote in school board elections, definitely. And I would encourage all of us, 18 years and older, to vote in every election. That's our voice. And working through the school board and showing in that definitive public way to show what policies and what um, curriculum you advocate uh, is absolutely an appropriate way to vote for your school board election. 
Right. And in the Catholic system? Well, are in the they, Catholic system, you know, well, we don't have unions. We don't have teachers' unions. And we don't have an elected school board. We don't even have one elected within yeah. the, the, the parental community. Your only way of communicating your frustration or your concerns is to work with the administration or teachers directly. What but our next guest, I know one of our next guests, I live in a town that has very heated school board elections. And not everybody, there were open seats that nobody ran for. So it's very interesting in this climate that um, given the opportunity a lot of people still aren't aren't entering into I wanna, the process I want to I want to bring this into the context of where we are with political discussion in the country right. because I mentioned at the beginning of the program uh, this subject is getting a lot of coverage it's getting yeah. a lot of coverage on cable television I think it's being fueled in large part on the conservative side by Fox News and my question mm -hmm. is this is there a, how widespread is this issue really i mean if if the people who are exercised and have run for the school board and this person is saying school board elections mm -hmm. aren't very high and i've heard that for 50 years mm -hmm. they're not high so not a lot of people are participating the people that are participating if you're participating and right. and you got a big mouth you're going to get some exposure and if you get too much exposure uh, the National School Board Association is going to come down to the Attorney General and say, look right. into this, and then somebody ends up describing them as domestic terrorists. Right. Why would somebody want to run for the school board? And I'm just wondering how much of this issue, the issue of, of critical race thinking and education in the classrooms and the battle between the administrators and the public, in your opinion, is real and not something that is being manufactured to gen up votes for Republicans or conservatives by Fox News. Well, Stephanie. I, I'm going to tell you it's 100% real. And I, uh, I, uh, my involvement in this issue in, in the Catholic sphere, so not even in the public arena, began long before I ever heard anyone on Fox News or anybody else talking about it. Let me ask the you problem this question. Is, How come we're not getting any calls on this subject today, or, or, or very few? Maybe they're doing their kids, helping their kids with their homework. I don't know, but but you know they. I but I will tell you, it is a real issue, and it's real because because of COVID, we saw school parents saw school in a completely different way than they'd ever that. seen it before, and they started to hear what was on what was in the lessons plan and what was in the Zoom calls. Things that come up that aren't necessarily on a syllabus. And kids weren't always coming home and complaining about what their teachers were doing. And so parents were starting to hear it. Are they more concerned about that or are they more concerned about COVID and wearing masks if kids have to wear masks and, and be vaccinated? I'd say it's 50-50. And the reason why is that... Um, I would say it's 50-50. There's a lot of parents that once they see what's going on in the classroom are not happy with the ideology and the indoctrination. Jennifer, How, I want to ask yeah. Jennifer. Jennifer, do you see it that same way? Would you analyze the political climate the same way that Stephanie has just described it? No, I guess I would look at it from another lens. I would look at this in the past few years with this racial reckoning in our country, that there's an, a more awareness to look at our history in a more complete and act, 
not just accurate because I believe it's been accurate, but cherry picked and whitewashed. And I think there's a movement and it begins with education. It begins early with toddlers to, to learn our history that's complete and fair and nuanced and represents all voices rather than teach a single whitewashed narrative. And while the, it's a powerful instinct to, um, to, to run away from acknowledging our shortcomings, I think about the faith tradition I was raised in and we didn't go to church once a week and receive the redemption, receive re reconciliation, receive all the good comfortable stuff. First you have to acknowledge your shortcomings. You have to confess and embrace that to move forward both as individuals and as a country. John also mentioned John also mentioned uh, teachers unions. They, they, they're, they're behind the eight ball at the moment. Would you acknowledge that? That nationally in this political debate that teachers and teachers union, primarily in large mm -hmm. municipalities, mm -hmm. they are perhaps losing the support of parents because of some of their positions on COVID, COVID testing, and masks in the classroom. Jennifer. I can't speak to the unions. To be honest, I haven't followed their I can't, I can't speak to that. I would follow science and CDC guidelines and being careful about any kind of, you know, spreading any germs. I'm not opposed to masks. Yeah. Stephanie? Well, I would say on the union front, uh, what we saw in Chicago in particular, it, you know, you don't have to be um, in a Chicago residence to see that there, there were definitely places where the unions held parents hostage, basically based on on wanting to push demands beyond the safety and security and health of students and faculty. Mm -hmm. And what we saw last year in Chicago, for example, were all sorts of other kinds of demands before they came back into the classroom that had nothing to do with masks or plexiglass or um, social distancing. And so there was definitely, um, in many places, um, a feeling that unions were putting themselves before students mm -hmm. and, and parent concerns and, and teachers even. Jennifer Warren, uh, Warner, by the way, joins us now. She is uh, with Stand for Children. Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us. You're one of our other special guests this evening. Take a moment to explain uh, to the audience what is Stand for Children? What do they do? Yes, well, good evening, um, and thanks so much for having me. Um, so Stanford Children, uh, we like to think of ourselves as catalysts for educational change. Um, we work with parents and community members uh, across the country um, to be involved in their local schools um, so that they can uh, have a voice and seat at the table. Um, we work for, um, you know, uh, funding uh, resources for schools to ensure that schools are receiving uh, adequate funding to support and, and grow the minds of our wonderful kids across the country. Um, we work for high school success. Uh, there are proven research-backed uh, programs that support kids to ensure that they can graduate from high school um, ready for college, ready for career, ready to be being citizens. Jennifer, um, we, we've got a um, we've got a we've got a break right now. But we've got a break right now for a commercial break. When we come back, I want you to elaborate a little bit more. I know you listened to hour number one. You want to weigh in on some of those topics. We'll also be hearing from uh, uh, Andana uh, Mubuyi, and uh, she'll be joining us as well. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, <laughs> tell me what to do. Cannonball! 
Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont, we continue with our Zoom guests, uh, Jennifer Warner. And also joining us now is Andana Mubuyahi. And uh, she joins us uh, from her home in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, ladies, thanks very much for joining us. I want to go to Jennifer first because you uh, you were listening to the first hour. Uh, is there anything that uh, you heard that you think needs uh, dramatic interpretation or reinterpretation? <laughs> I mean, I, I would say that I was really glad to hear um, that both guests, uh, you know, want to see accurate and thorough history in our schools. I think that's mm-hmm. something that we all um, want to see. Something I think just was an interesting theme coming up from um, from the discussion, and I think um, you know just some some questions about why our history. You know, we need to have leaders who are either good or bad, right? These are complex people, um, and we have to start being comfortable with that in our history and in the formation of our country. Um, we started with a lot of wonderful ideals that won't fully 
um, realized. And we need to know that. And we certainly need that next generation of students to know that so that we're continuing to build that more perfect union. I think we all can agree to that. But if we start with this idea that everything was perfect and maybe there were a few glimpses, a little bit of the kind of wrong balance, I think. Um, and, and I think it comes from this place of wanting um, to have this great story when really the facts and the complexity is what we need. And I think is the patriotic thing for us to do um, to bring forward the ideals of our country. And Donna, I want to go to you because uh, you went to uh, Evanston Township High School. Then uh, you moved away for many, many years. And then you decided you wanted to come back to Evanston because you wanted your children to have the good quality education that you received. But when you came back, you did not find such, such a great location or environment there. Uh, have I summarized that correctly? And what was it about the current environment there that bothers you? Uh, well, you did pretty much sum it up as it was. Um, I, I grew up in Evanston. I'm the fifth generation of a large family here. And I went off to college in New York City right after graduating HHS, Evanston Township mm -hmm. High School. And I lived away for over 20 years. And I got married, had my children. And when we decided, after living in Canada for quite some time, we decided to return to the States. I finally decided, well, why don't we move to Evanston, where I grew up? It's a lot less expensive than living in New York City, um, where, it's, where I really wanted to go. But in Evanston, you can have a quality of life, less expensive, very good schools, diverse environment. You know, it wasn't perfect, but based on the education that my children had received in Oakville, Ontario, I felt that the education in Evanston would be um, on par. What did with you find? What it, with what they were learning in, in uh, Canada. What did you and, find? What I, I'm sorry, go ahead. What did you find when you got to Evanston? Oh, there was oh so much going on. Um, the Evanston that I grew up in and left back in 1994, I came back in 2018 to an extremely polarized town um, where there were people labeling Evanston as being the bedrock of our nation's white supremacy, being a place where black people could never get ahead, being a place where um, there really were very little opportunities for African-Americans or even minorities um, overall. Whereas my experience and the experience of many families like my own here in Evanston was not like that. I can say that yes, there were um, there were some injustices based on the history of Evanston um, that had to do with redlining, that had to do with um, discrimination that took place over the years, especially since my family's been here since the late 1800s. So, of course, they did experience um, a number of things over the years. And Dola, let me, uh, let, 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 let me interrupt this. Let me interrupt and ask you, what was it about the teaching that your children were receiving in Evanston what was it that got you upset that caused you or that forced you or moved you to run for the school board? What, what really ticked you off about how your children were being taught? What really ticked me off was when we first returned, my daughter was in eighth grade and my son, my son was a sophomore. <clears throat> and um, my, my son would come home and say things to me such as um 
you know, I want to be a civil rights lawyer. Okay, you know, nothing wrong with that. But then he would start to tell me about all of the injustices that have taken place, you know, against black people and how one particular party has always been on the side of black Americans. And I said, that's not true. And I'm like, you know, depending on what time period they were, you know, we were with one party and then we switched to another party. Whoever was doing for us what we felt was best for us as a community, that's where we were historically. So what for what, his party, teacher, what party what what party was was he told were, were the good guys? He was he was told by his teacher that the Democratic Party has always been on the side of African Americans. Not true. And I told him that historically <laughs> that is not true. And I I gave him the history of both parties. I gave him a more thorough history of African American history, including all of the contributions that our people have made since inception of this nation and even prior. Mm-hmm. which, of course, he didn't learn while we were in Canada, but I felt mm-hmm. I was like in, you know, um, super, super <laughs> hyper mode having mm-hmm. to teach my children what they had not learned while we were in Canada. Okay. And I, my main problem with the teacher was that I felt if you're going to teach history, and this was an advanced placement history course, mm-hmm. that you should teach the entire history. Don't just teach what you feel works best for you. Whether it's good or bad, whether I'm, you like it or not, I'm, teach I'm, it. I want to. I want to interrupt, and I and I, and I want to bring Jennifer back into the conversation. Jennifer, uh, with with your group, are are you involved in the type of discussions that take place between teachers and parents who believe that they have a responsibility and they have a right to tell their teachers how they want their students to be taught? Is, is that a right that you think a parent has, or do you think that is a responsibility that a professionally trained educator should have? Yeah, so our organizing model really is about making sure that parents know uh, what avenues and levers are available to them, whether it's going to school board meetings, voting, obviously, it being a big one, um, and public comment periods, which are really important and utilized often uh, for state boards as they're determining curriculum. Um, and we often uh, have you know toolkits on meeting with your teacher and having effective conversations with your teacher. Um, I think that you know education is a huge, <laughs> a huge undertaking. Um, That's why almost, you know, more than 50% of teachers have a master's degree, Um, but it's obviously something that is a community decision, right? It's a community involvement. Um, Parents need to know what's going on and have avenues for doing so, but we also need to trust our teachers to teach us. The majority of uh, Americans in public polls have said that they do. Um, Our teachers undergo uh, extensive training um, for having difficult conversations, uh, for example, to ensure that the curriculum that they're teaching is a appropriate for their students in that age bracket. Um, but yeah, neither the, but, one should but be done in a vacuum, which Jennifer, is why you have so many yeah. um, parents showing up at school board meetings. And Jennifer, let me ask this. <clears throat> Based on the, the story that we just heard uh, from uh, Andola, do you believe that in the case, the case that she referenced, when she felt mm-hmm. that her student, that there was a teacher who said that you know one party was better for black people than the other, is that something that just one person should complain about? I mean, should you go to the principal? I mean, uh, when you have something that is that is so demonstratively incorrect, 
And I'm not I'm not painting a rosy picture of the Republican Party. I'm just saying you can't say that one party right. has been, you know, for 300 years has been good for, for African Americans. Uh, what should a parent like that do? Should they run for office? What do they do? Yeah, well, I think uh, what every parent would do, right? They, I'm assuming you also sat down and talked with the teacher to, you know, yeah. understand what was the context. Right. Um, um, of course, having first talked with your, uh, with your own child to understand, you know, maybe they misunderstood or you always give, I think, grace to people and then to conversations that you haven't had. But certainly it's something that you'd want to address. And in many cases, um, and it's great to, to see that this is happening, it can spur parents to be involved, right? School board members um, are public servants in all literal senses of the word as they are often not paid um, for doing that work. Um, and so, you know, it's another place where parents, many of whom uh, are school board members, our parents to be involved in the education system. Do you see uh, the, the political movements in the country, be they left or right, do you see them, uh, in your view, aggressively pursuing education and the education community as a way to uh, fan their particular philosophy of politics and indoctrinate children to their thinking? I'm going to start with you on this one, Jennifer. Is this a national movement, maybe on both sides of the political aisle? Um, I, look, I work for an education advocacy organization. We're always happy to have more people talking about education. It's the number one um, issue in our minds. And then, you know, you do public polling and it's always in the top three, but it has not been the issue that has gotten people uh, to the polls. Uh, other issues tend to be uh, those issues that drive people to the polls. Over the last decades, the funding for schools um, across the board has continued to drop. Teacher shortages are a real issue. This pandemic uh, and what teachers are experiencing right now is not making that any easier. Um, the diversity in teachers uh, is a struggle across the country. There are a lot of really important issues um, for which we need everyone to be involved and want to see everyone being involved, but we need to always have a civil conversation about it to be able to bring our ideas our thoughts our disagreements and do so in a civil way that's what democracy is about and if there are parties and, that are pushing that i'm all for it and when we come when we come back i want to get andola's, i want to get andola's response never, when we come back i want okay. i want to hear from andola when we come back i'm bruce dumont don't go away This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. 
Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. <laughs> I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, well, tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Bus driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your pet jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Mr. Dumont back, hour number two continues. And uh, before the break, we have, by the way, 1-800-723-8289. We have a lot of callers on the line. We're going to bring them into the conversation. But before the break, I asked a question, and I said, that, uh, and Donna, I'm going to give you a chance to respond to it, and let me just set it up again. Uh, are we at a point in our history where uh, right-of-center groups and left-of-center groups have found that school boards and being involved in school issues is a, uh, is a, is a training ground uh, to get teachers and to get students indoctrinated into their philosophy of politics. What do you think of that, Andana? If I speak specifically about Evanston, yes, I do believe so. And the reason why I say that is because the... Another reason why I decided to run was because of the academic achievement gap of African-American students in my town. Uh -huh where nearly 60% cannot read at grade level. And rather than addressing what the root cause might be, the response has been from not only the school board, but also some activists in the community that it all had to do with white supremacy. Now, I know many of the families here in Evanston I know the history of many of the families here in Evanston, and I'm aware that certain there are certain families that have issues that affect their children's daily lives, their education. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that racism does not exist because it most definitely does. But if I speak about me personally, 
at a time where my parents were having difficulties when I was growing up, I wasn't able to concentrate on my schoolwork. I wouldn't turn in assignments. I wouldn't do, I would sometimes act out in school. And because of what was taking place at home, it affected my schoolwork. So what I would do is I would reach out to the school. I even, you know, spoke at the, um, in my interviews, even spoke, reached out to the principal of a couple of the schools. And I mentioned that I could assist with helping out with some of these children because I have an educational nonprofit as well. Mm-hmm. And it was as if everyone wanted to ignore the numerous other issues that do affect our children daily as to why some of our children are not doing well. Right. The main focus was on the race of the teachers, on addressing um, everything except for family dynamics. Do you, a question to you, and then we're going to move on and take some telephone calls. Once upon a time, uh, the national news media, specifically newspapers, were far more dominant than they are today. Uh, Evanston, Illinois, was held up as the the, the, the be-all and end-all in public education. It was the place integration worked, where the the, the communication between blacks and whites worked, students got along, all that was, that was part of the, uh, I would say, the, the, the public image, the narrative of what Evanston, Illinois, represented. Now, I don't know whether you went there during that period, per se, but when you came back, you, you came back and found something different. And I'm wondering if the great challenge of those involved in education in Evanston today is, you were trying to live up to an ideal, a, a, a mantle that was given to you 40 or 50 years ago. And the reality is, when you look with a microscope at Evanston's school, high school, it ain't that great. It certainly isn't what it was 30 or 40 years ago. And yet you have a national news media, and when they check their Nexus and Lexus, they find that this is one of the great high schools in America. Is there some truth to what I just said, Nandola? Nandana? It, it was absolutely one of the best school districts that you could go to. I'm tell, when I left ETHS, because I went to elementary, middle, and high school here, Mm-hmm. And when I left ETHS in 1994, I had one of the best education you could imagine. I arrived in New York City, and when I tell you that I was far ahead of many people that I encountered in New York City that had gone to New York City public schools, and even in Westchester County, mm-hmm. as well as Long Island in New Jersey. And I was proud of the education that I received in Evanston. Mm-hmm. And for me to then return with my children over 20 years later, and, and I will say that my, both of my children are getting very good education, but that's also because I challenge my children. My son is now at New York University in his freshman year, um, and my daughter is now a junior. I challenge my children. I do follow them on all of their assignments. When they're not doing what they're supposed to do, I speak with them. I also reach out to their right. teachers. I'm a very active parent. And down and right, so right now, what, I, what, I, what, I've, what I've got to do right now, and this is for everybody, uh, our, our conversation has really engaged people around the country. They want to participate, so I'm going to go to some calls right now. Let's go to David on line one. He's listening to us on KLBJ in Austin, Texas. 
Go ahead, David. Okay, I want to talk about them talking about true history. Well, often in debates like this, the truth is the first casualty, and I will talk about, they were talking about Robert E. Lee. Now, number one point, Robert E. Lee released his father-in-law's slaves because his father-in-law, in his will, had released his slave, and Robert E. Lee was the executioner of, this, of the will. Executor. He had Executor. Executor. Yeah, okay. Executor. He had a couple of body servants, and if she, the woman doesn't believe me, she can consult Dr. Douglas Freeman's four-volume biography of Robert E. Lee. And it'll talk that. No, but that, that, that was, if you're the executor of a will, you have to do as the person recommended. Exactly. But, but that's, not what, that's not what Jennifer was talking about. She was talking about Robert E. Lee specifically, what he did, not what his father did or grandfather did. So, I mean, well, we're she talking was, two different stories she, here. Well, she was implying that Robert E. Lee was against slavery, which he was not. He released the slaves because the will told him to. He owned a couple of body servants. It's in the okay. Douglas Freeman biography. Now, point number two, the tale about whipping and crying and sawing and all that was a phony atrocity story made up by a newspaper during the Civil War to attack the Confederacy. It has absolutely no truth. Jennifer Lind wants to respond because she was shaking her head negatively as you spoke. We're going to give her the last word, then we're going to move on. Jennifer, do you want to clarify your point? Sure. Freeman's um, four-volume biography is share hagiography, largely hagiography, that does not address the correct or accurate or complete history of Robert E. Lee. There are several other authors, starting with Alan Nolan, you could look at to read the truth about Robert E. Lee. And it should not diminish his accomplishments if we see the full and accurate history of him. Um, like our other, like the founding fathers, he was not a founding, but we should really understand and study to and reckon with their full nuanced history, their tragedies and their triumphs all intertwined okay. together. We all agree on that point. David, thank you very much for your call. Let's move elsewhere in Texas. Let's go to Ben, listening to us uh, on El Paso, Texas. Go ahead, line two. Yeah, um, besides uh, CRT, one of the biggest areas of contention of all, board, of all the board meetings coming around uh, throughout the United States was the area of wearing a mask. And um, when, when Michael Olsterholm, um, one of uh, two uh, Biden's top uh, medical advisors, said that unless you're wearing an N95 or KN95 mask, you're not wearing anything at all. Yeah, the cloth masks don't have any use whatsoever against COVID, and why we uh, have to mask our kids up where they can't breathe, uh, that was a big reason. That was, and that also goes to the political um, mm -hmm. uh, statement that the school, school boards were trying to make. Right. right. Well, let's talk. By the way, I think that that is even hotter issue in students right. over over the CRT. So yeah. I want to get each. Re I want to get your reaction first. Well, and then, uh, well I think then part of it, yeah, is that um, you know a lot of parents feel like um, you know the school. First of all, children. You know, if if we're going to follow the science, it's been shown that children are not massive spreaders. Of COVID, and that they they don't they certainly don't bear the the same risks when they do get COVID, right. and so on. I think there was also this um, there's a strong feeling um, from parents is that it, it it becomes a charade that these aren't necessarily effective, 
that all of a sudden it, it really becomes an issue um, of control of students. Is it more about is it more, but is it more about the teachers, Jennifer? I would think it's also protecting teachers. Yeah, Jennifer. Right. No, two Jennifers tonight. Yeah. It's a good name. I think it's the unions, unions put, yeah. presented it that way. Certainly masks can protect the teachers and everyone in the building. They're certainly not perfect. I come from a long line of teachers in my family and um, elementary school teachers as well. And, you know, the kids start with Mickey Mouse mask and they end up with, you know, a, a princess mask because they're switching them around, they're falling off. Mm -hmm. They're certainly not perfect, but especially for the teachers, I think it's something to support them on if they feel more protected. Okay. Let's go to Spokane, Washington. Joy is listening to us on KXLY. Go ahead, Joy. You know, I think one of the things that um, is a more general um, difference between the right and the left, or at least it's how I see it, and I'm on the left, is um, how we are looking at the issues or what's being discussed or what's being taught. And I hear on the right the word indoctrination much more um, then on the left, I personally, I think of it as more of awareness, as providing information. Um, just for example, you look at um, um, a... Hold off for a second. Hold off for a, sep a second with your example. We do have to go to a commercial break. When we come back, we'll continue okay. with you. You can give us the example, and we'll let everyone respond. 1-800-723-8289. Don't go away. I'm Bruce Dumont. This is Beyond the Beltway. What if... Music stopped. If the familiar voices were silenced, if there were no breaking news updates, what if your companion and connection to your community came with a monthly fee? Don't worry, we're free local radio with you wherever you go, celebrating 100 years and looking forward to the next 100. We are broadcasters. Text radio to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on your local TV and radio stations. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger for 24 hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone you know. Call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. 
This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Rustumov, but we are back for our last segment this evening, and uh, Joy from Spokane, Washington was on, and uh, uh, Joy, bring us up to date specifically, what is your question? Well, so I was looking at indoctrination versus awareness and inform. I mean, you look from Mr. Rogers introducing a black um, um, character on his show uh-huh. and the controversy that started on um, on the LGBTQ um, population. You know, if 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 um, Sesame Street has a gay character, from the right you hear it's indoctrination. Um, you are looking at transgender boys and girls. Well, if that's discussed, it's indoctrination, that we want to turn every one of the, the boys and girls at school into a transgender um, boy or girl, when in fact, all of these different groups have faced more violence and more um, hate and more bias. And so, from my standpoint, introducing these concepts, introducing our history, introducing differences is increasing awareness, is increasing people being comfortable with each other. Their kids in your school have two mothers and have two dads. So do we not talk about lesbians and gays? They may have a transgender big sister. So we not talk about it because everyone in school is going to turn to Joy, transgender. Stay on stay stay on line. It was a it's a very good question. I think I think we all understand yeah. it now. The difference between the indoctrination and awareness uh, you use right. the transgender uh, debate, uh, so I want to get both. I'm going to start with you, Jennifer, on your response to that, and then we'll hear from the Stephanie. Well, it sounds like our caller, Joy, what she's bringing up in awareness is lifting all voices and avoiding the danger of a single narrative or a single story. If we only teach a single narrative that can be, um, it's dangerous to not lift every person, every uh, voice from marginalized communities that have typically not been represented in our education in a balanced or nuanced way. I think that's where the awareness can come from. Let, let, I, I, I want to ask uh, uh, Jennifer Warner the same question. Jennifer, we haven't heard from you for a while. Uh, uh, your position on, on teaching of, of transgender issues, and is it something that should start in high school and grammar school? Uh, where would you put it as uh, um, a wise point to introduce the concept that people are different. Well, I think uh, raising the concept that people are different should uh, start kind of right away because that's uh, something we all recognize that uh-huh. there are people who are different from us. I think the point is that uh, as uh, Jennifer Lind 
pointed out is that there are uh, wide facets of people with diverse experiences, backgrounds, and lived lives who have contributed positively to our country, and we need to explore and share and celebrate all of them. Some of them might be transgender, some of them might be people of color, some of them might be lesbian or gay. That doesn't diminish their contribution to our country, just as many of the callers and uh, guests on this program have indicated that those who have held slaves in the past we don't diminish or refuse to talk about them because of the other things that they brought to the table we should do that across the board uh stephanie your well, response and i think i think joy i wanted to address is one of the things that our parents have seen is what what may have begun as a a good idea and that is to introduce ideas of, of differences of people diversity and awareness and compassion and welcoming all of those things, I think we all will agree, are, are good qualities. What, what happens is indoctrination happens when a particular view on some of these issues is, is, is provided to the students, and it is dictated in a way where the, stu the students are not allowed to criticize, dissent, question, or bring in any critical components of maybe that particular lecture or that presentation. And that's what we were seeing as parents, that that's where you cross the line of indoctrination. And I think as Jennifer said, we should always have another viewpoint. I agree. The problem is we, we have been seeing a one particular viewpoint with the silencing of dissent and questioning or debate on those issues you, and not giving the other side. Do you, That's when it becomes indoctrination. Do you think that a, that a teacher teaching in a, in, a, in a school system today could present a case that transgenderism or transgender is not a healthy lifestyle? Could someone in a keep a job... In a public school. Probably not in public school. You know, I'm in the Catholic system. Do you agree with that? So. Well, they certainly, would they be able to keep the job no, in it, a Catholic school? Well, no. There's very, you know, Catholic doctrine is very, very clear on the um, awareness yeah. of transgender issues and the compassion. Even on homosexuality? But, but all, yes, but also the viewpoint of, um, accept, you know, what what is acceptable and what is um, considered um false versus true compassion and do, and and donna let me ask you that question do you think it would be possible for a uh, a teacher today in a public school system to present a case uh in opposition to transgenderism would that teacher have a job or would they be protected under uh enlightenment enlightenment and uh, general freedom of expression in your view and donna in my view, no, they would not. They would lose their job, even if the if the uh, school system did not dismiss them immediately. There would be so much backlash from the community that I live in yeah. that eventually that educator would be um, fired. Uh, Jennifer Lynn, do you do you agree that with what Andola just said that a teacher who who would take a more traditional approach? I won't even say a Christian approach, but a more traditional approach on on, on, on gender issues that they would not be able to present a case that challenges the, the concept of transgenderism or its dominance in uh, as part of the contemporary discussion. I think a teacher should not be able to 
push their own personal views or opinions on such an issue or tell, t tell students what's the right way to live. But it's not their personal opinion. I think what Bruce is asking, I think it's valid, is there are, um, you know, there is another side to transgenderism. I mean, and that is there, there is, um, you know, there is a scientific fact that, you know, genetically, if you're male, you're male. There's and a different side to there's Robert a bio, Lee, There's a biology, know. and right. if you say that, like Dave Chappelle, you could be canceled. We have to pause. Uh, Debbie, uh, Sacramento, I'm sorry we did not get to you, but again, uh, Jennifer Warner, we thanks very much for your joining us this evening. And, uh, and Donna Mubayahi, thank you very much for joining us via Zoom this evening. Uh, Jennifer Lind, thank you very much. Stephanie Hitt, thank you very much. Welcome. She did a pretty good job on her yeah, maiden voice. Say welcome, Jennifer. Welcome. We Frankie do, Rodriguez. We'll I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night. Less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm gonna make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor, check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council.